Good afternoon and welcome to the 21 News Podcast. I'm Managing Editor Justin Mitchell, and once again, the nation is reeling from another mass shooting in a school, the most recent being Uvalde, Texas, earlier this week. Elementary school children murdered in their classroom by a young adult wielding a high-powered weapon. The story, horrific as it is, is a familiar one in the United States, which leads the world by far in these types of mass shootings. With us today is Michael Lawler of the University of New Haven. Michael is an expert in mass shootings and as a Connecticut legislator was the author of the first red flag law in the country. Michael, thank you for being with us and, and helping as we all just sort of try to make sense of some of this and look for what the path forward needs to be. You know, these, these stories, they become almost a symbol of American life. Teachers plan for mass shootings, students train for them, and they happen again and again and again. I'd like to start by getting your take on why this seems to be such a uniquely American problem. Well, I mean, the, 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 well, first, first of all, thanks for inviting me. Uh, it's, a, it's a terrible tub, uh, subject to be talking about, uh, but it's important to have these discussions and try and understand what's happening, what's driving it. So um, the one thing for sure that sets our country apart from pretty much any other country that we'd like to be compared to is the fact that our nation is flooded with guns. And there's a bunch of different reasons for that, but it's a fact. And I think as a result, it should be no surprise that guns are getting into the hands of people who shouldn't have them and incidents like this take place. And in particular, the types of guns that are available now that are aggressively marketed, these AR-15 platform weapons, um, you know, they're specifically designed to kill as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, as accurately as possible. That's what the gun is designed to do, and that's what it does. And that's why these uh, mass shooters choose it. And, and I think grappling with what to do about that fact is the challenge that is in front of every policymaker in the country right now. And, and the problem with that uh, that we run into is we're also in, not that we're not always in political times, but we're in uniquely hyper-partisan political times. And so every time one of these happen, the political responses tend to be also rather predictable. Democratic politicians call for something to be done generally on the, along the lines of some sort of gun reform. Republican politicians have some variation of either saying it's not the time for a political discussion or point to issues like mental health or school security measures um, and say that guns are not the problem. Is there is there something of just a pragmatic answer, taking the politics out of how to unravel a problem like this? I mean, is it really so complex or are we just so wrapped up in the politics that, quite frankly, kids' lives take a back seat to it? Well, you're quite right. They're, these are hyper-partisan times and, and people tend to have predictable, as you said, uh, knee-jerk reactions to pretty much every event in public life these days. Um, let me put my cards on the table. As you mentioned, I was a legislator for 24 years in Connecticut. I was a prosecutor before that. And uh, I'm a Democrat, I'm kind of a left of center Democrat. I worked for Governor Malloy for eight years while he was uh, governor. I was his criminal justice advisor. I was there for the uh, Sandy Hook uh, shootings and, and helped develop the policies that grew out of that. And um, so, uh, but 
it is worth noting that there are practical, effective policies uh, that can be implemented. And um, it's also worth noting that the only problem is not guns, right? There are other issues at play here. Uh, and you can see these very clearly in these last two incidents, in the, the one in Texas and then the one in Buffalo, New York. Right? You see very young kids, 18 years old, getting you know, clearly uh, deciding to go buy one of these AR-15 weapons and use it to kill as many people as possible as quickly as possible, right? It seems like they pick their targets for different reasons. Like there was a white supremacist in the case of Buffalo. It seems like this kid in, in Texas was bullied and, 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 and had a terrible home life, et cetera, et cetera, and had some apparent, what is now apparent mental health problems um, and, and was probably just in a suicidal rage and, and did what he did. Um, so there is a mental health dimension to this problem, right? Uh, and, and, and there are some potential solutions to that. Um, some people talk about video games and violent games on the internet. Well, you know, um, on those two topics, right, it is worth noting that every other country in the world has a similar prevalence of mental illness and... There's plenty of violent video games that you can watch if you're a kid in Germany or Japan or anywhere else, but none of these countries have the kinds of incidents we have. And so the only real difference seems to be the accessibility of these types of weapons. So, but it's not to say those aren't problems that need to be addressed. And in an ideal world, um, especially with young people, uh, local school officials or parents or health providers would be able to identify kids who are dealing with these issues and match them up with services that will help address the, the problem. Um, in almost all these cases, uh, the, uh, the, the, to the extent there was a mental health issue at the root of it, it, it was undiagnosed, unrecognized, untreated. Uh, ironically, the kid in Buffalo, um, you know, about a year earlier as a high school student had written an essay which was all about mass killings and it got to the level where the teachers had to notify the police and the police referred the kid for a mental health evaluation as I understand it and came back well there's no diagnosis here so uh, obviously that's not going to solve all these problems it's complicated but it's real so and, and, and in the aftermath of the pandemic I think you know I have a 14 year old son at home uh, myself and you know, you can see how he and his friends at school in eighth grade, you know, struggled between, you know, the, the, the all the restrictions that went along with the, the pandemic. You know, it's been hard on them. Right, teach at a university, right? Our, our students, you can tell they're they're not having the same college experience that I had when I went to college. And so, I think all of this stuff adds up to, to problems. But then, if you throw in easy access to a firearm you really have a recipe for disaster. And I think that's you know, kind of figuring out the balance there is a challenge. But for sure, it's not any one thing. It's all of those things. But more than anything else, it's access to firearms. That is the, I mean, that essentially is the outlier. I mean, we, because we know that guns are an American outlier. I mean, we Americans have more mass shootings by far than anywhere else in the quote unquote developed world with less regulation and that's, you know, and just to make clear, because I know and thank you for laying your cards on the table as to your partisan affiliations. But that 
That is a fact. That's not a political statement. That's just a fact that there are more guns and there are more mass shootings. Now, the other factors that are cited, like mental health and, um, you know, even even things like school security. I mean, are guns are guns the only outlier in the United States? I mean, for instance, mental health is an issue other places in the world. Are they doing something better somewhere else that we should be looking at for handling mental health care? I mean, if a politician says mental health is what we should really be looking at, what I never seem to hear them say is, and so here's my policy proposal for how we should increase access to mental health care. Well, you saw Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, uh, say this just the other day, right? And, uh, you know, ironically, apparently, in, uh, in the Texas state budget, he imposed a very dramatic reduction in mental health funding for Texas. So, all right, I, you know, to me, and again, this is a bit of, bit of a political criticism, but, you know, I guess if you had nothing else to say, you would talk about mental illness or hardening schools or something like that. But, like, you shouldn't match that up with action. So there's that. You asked about what goes on in other countries with regard to mental health, right? So uh, I think it's only fair to compare ourselves to wealthy countries like the United States. Uh, and it is worth noting in almost every other country in that category, um, access to healthcare generally is not a, a function of whether or not you have health insurance or your ability to pay. Uh -huh. um, and, and that is a real obstacle in this country. Uh, even people with good health insurance tend not to have really good mental health coverage for uh, mental health treatment, including inpatients. So um, that is a big challenge in this country, and that's another you know, third rail of politics to talk about socialized medicine or Obamacare or whatever. <laughs> and and uh, But, you know, it would be helpful if, if you needed mental health care, you could get it and not have to worry about bankrupting yourself. Uh, there's also a fair amount of stigma that goes along with reaching out for help if you have a mental illness. Um, even though, and it, and it should be stated right off the bat, I learned this lesson very clearly over the years, that there actually is no evidence that persons with mental illness are more dangerous than people who are not suffering from mental illness. There are some persons with mental illness who are really dangerous, and there are also some people that don't have a diagnosis who are also really dangerous. Sure. So, it's it, it's it's wrong to imply that you're dangerous just because you're mentally ill. And I say that because you see a lot of politicians in both parties, actually, saying things like persons with mental illness should not have firearms. Okay, why, <laughs> right? Uh, this is a case-by-case -case analysis, I think. And, you know, uh, I'm happy to go into a lot of detail about it, but I think it's fair to say that what has evolved here in Connecticut in terms of a whole variety of, rules governing access and possession of firearms, uh, I think we now have a, a, a system that seems to be very effective. There's more we could do for sure, but um, you know, it is designed to protect people's constitutional right under the United States and the Connecticut state constitution also has a right to keep and bear arms in defense of yourself or the state. That's what it says. And so we can respect that, but we can come up with reasonable rules to govern under what circumstances you should be prohibited from owning firearms, under what circumstances firearms should be taken away from you, um, and and under what circumstances you should be able to buy firearms, which types of firearms you should be able to buy and possess. And and I think that's the way to go. And, and if you have a system like that, um, 
you can sort of police the fact that persons who are dangerous, whether or not they have mental illness, are not allowed to have guns and can't buy them. And and look at look at what happened both in Buffalo and in Texas. Again, these are the two most recent examples of the evils right. to talk about. In Texas, kid just turned eighteen, just a couple of weeks ago, goes out and buys not one but two AR-15s plus hundreds of rounds of ammunition. And it's clear when he bought those things, he had a clear plan in his head what he was going to do with them. In other words, shoot his grandmother and go shoot up a school and, and in the process get killed, which I'm sure it was really a murder-suicide, mm-hmm. suicide by cop, as it's referred to. And so, um, but that could never happen in Connecticut. Like, first of all, you can't buy those weapons in Connecticut legally. You can't buy those large capacity magazines in Connecticut legally. That's at all? That's not, there's not any, like, by a certain age? I mean, those are just, you're able to ban those no, at the state level? Ban altogether. Period. And, and, and that the, mag, the large capacity magazine ban was enacted right after the Sandy Hook murders. Um, in, it was enacted in 2013. Mm-hmm. And we've always had a, a, an assault weapon ban dating back to the early 1990s, but it's been added to over time because, you know, the manufacturers tend to uh, redesign these weapons so they don't actually fit the definitions in the ban. And so we have to add more clarity to the definition or more weapons to the list. And in any event, uh, but and the only way you can buy any firearm in Connecticut or any ammunition for that matter is you have to have a credential issued by the state police, a license. And in order to get that, not only do you have to go through the national instant check, but also a much more thorough background check by the police. Also, you have to go through a training uh, curriculum uh, to, so you clearly understand gun safety and the laws governing using deadly force and self-defense. Um, plus, you have to have a face-to-face meeting with both your local police and the state police before you're going to get this. And it mm-hmm. takes months to get it. Uh, and so there's no way a kid could turn 18 and go out and get one of these licenses. In fact, you can't get a license until you're 21. There is an exception. Uh, there's a special certificate uh, for if you're 18 and you just want to buy, let's say, a shotgun. Um, you can do that, but still it, it requires face-to-face meeting with the state police and a background check and stuff. So the bottom line is you can't on impulse go out and buy guns like this kid. Sure. You can't buy those guns here. In Buffalo, same, similar problem. Uh, That, that kid bought a gun that was technically legal in New York state under their assault weapon ban uh, because it didn't have a detachable magazine, Mm. but those are easily modified make it so that you can insert a 30 round detachable magazine which is exactly what he did and and you can't do that either here because um because you would never have the license that would allow you to buy the gun in the first place let alone at age 18. so i I, but law-abiding citizens in connecticut they can buy as many guns as they want not any type of gun buy sure i mean so i think it's it's striking that balance that's important so a lot of the discussion we always hear about what kind of legislation there could be tends to focus on the stalemate in Washington on this. So you're you're really citing a lot of these Connecticut examples. And, and I don't think people necessarily think about the fact that federal law doesn't have to dictate this. States can step in. I mean, you could talk to, you know, th- this debate could be playing out in state legislatures also. Um, you, for instance, you mentioned the national, uh, the national background check, that instant check. 
We had an incident just today. Well, actually yesterday, but it's the story is breaking today. In Ohio, there is no state background check system. And in fact, it's about to go into effect next month that there's no permit or any permit necessary for concealing a weapon at all. It's essentially anybody can buy and conceal a weapon. Um, But we had a case that we're just reporting on today where there was a kid who allegedly threatened to shoot up this trade school that he was going to. He's a teenager, but he's an adult. Um, And then left, went and bought an AR-15 and some ammunition, passed the background check with flying colors, that instant check from what we're told, and then was, by coincidence, he was uh, he was caught because somebody at the gun store happened to know somebody at the school and say, hey, anything up here? <laughs> and that's the only reason. I mean, the kid allegedly was on his way back to the school to make good on a threat, possibly. Um, so I, I say that because that's a system that only relies on what's in place at the federal level. And, uh, and also talking about Ohio... After the Dayton shooting, Governor Mike DeWine initially had come out in favor of some sort of red flag law, which is one of the reasons that we were talking to you today. Um, So I wanted, and I suspect some of the provisions you've already talked about are provisions of that red flag law in Connecticut. So I first want to talk about what a red flag law is, which is, in essence, a law that looks for it's a system in place whereby certain things would be a red flag that somebody might not be a safe gun owner that there could be some reason to think they could hurt somebody i mean is that the simplest way to say it right well yeah but i think it's oversimplified because you need a lot more than that to take action under our law and maybe the easiest way to explain uh, the Connecticut red flag law, which, as you said, is the first. It's been in, on the books since 1999, so we're coming up on 25 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it grew out of an incident that happened here in 1998, where uh, a, a guy who was an employee at the Connecticut State Lottery Corporation um, uh, had been working there for a long time, was having some stress-related problems at work, went out on a basically a, a leave of absence so he can deal with whatever issues are going on in his life and uh, he was due to come back to work and his fellow employees were nervous about this guy because they felt he was kind of unstable and they were afraid of him. Uh, While he was away he moved in with his parents and during the time he lived with his parents he attempted suicide and after that he started to accumulate a lot of guns and the parents called the police and they said, is there something you can do? Because, you know, we're worried our son's got all these guns. He was suicidal. He's got the stress related to work. And the cops accurately said, well, unless he's broken some criminal law, there's nothing we can really do. And then one day, on the about the day he was supposed to return to work, goes back, walks down the hallway of the headquarters and starts shooting people one at a time. And then when the police respond, he kills himself in the parking lot. <sighs> um, uh, a short time after that, we had another incident here where uh, neighbors in a mobile home park called the state police about um, a guy that was one of their neighbors who they, they thought was acting very strangely. And so the state police arrived, and as they approached his mobile home, he opened fire on them. Fortunately, he did not kill any of them, but seriously wounded three state troopers. Um, when they finally took him into custody, uh, they found that the home was booby-trapped with all kinds of explosives there were 
you know, all kinds of weapons inside, all kinds of ammunition. Um, and and after the fact, it turned out that this guy's he was from upstate New York. Originally, he had gone back to live with his family for a little while because he had a job in the post office. And uh, he took a leave of absence from that. And uh, the postal inspectors were notified by the family that they were really concerned about this guy. And they said the same thing. There's really nothing we can do. He hasn't broken any law, right? And and so in both of those cases, you had all these, what we now know as red flags, but it was a fact that the police actually didn't have the authority to do anything about it. So when I was in the legislature, you know, we tried to say like, how could we come up with a mechanism the police could use that would be effective and at the same time constitutional? And so that's how we... Uh, developed the red flag law. And by the way, when it passed, it had bipartisan support, including support from a lot of very sort of pro-Second Amendment Republican legislators in both the House of Representatives and the Senate, right? So I mean, it, that's because, um, and, and I was involved in negotiating this, right? Because we listened to the concerns that were raised and say, okay, well, we can accommodate that. We can come up with a provision that would make sure that that thing doesn't happen. So like people said, uh, they refer to it as a turn in your neighbor law. So you call on your next door neighbor and say, hey, he's acting strangely. And so you come and seize his guns. Well, that's not what, I mean, it, it, the, the police have to conduct an investigation and they have to come up with evidence that convinces a judge that there's probable cause to believe this individual, A, has access to firearms and B, poses an imminent risk to himself or to others. And we, there's factors in there that we uh, uh, develop by talking to mental health providers about what would be the indicators that someone poses a risk of injury to other people. And they said, well, if you've got a current or history of making threats of violence against people, current or history of substance abuse, alcohol, drugs, that kind of thing, cruelty to animals, things like this. And there's a list of them in the statute. And so when you... Uh, I, mean, I think we all know people, we all know people who you can tell are a little bit on the edge. They're obsessed with things and, and they're angry and they're bitter and they're resentful. And and sometimes they have access to firearms and sometimes they're kind of obsessed with the whole uh, firearms thing. And, you know, you start to wonder, so like, yeah, I, that guy may snap someday, right? Sure. And, and after the fact, you, know, you hear people say, well, we're not really surprised. We always figured if anybody did it, it would be this guy. So that's what it's designed for. Call, reach out to law enforcement. Let them figure it out and then decide whether or not they've got enough evidence to take action. So th this, as I said, this law has been on the books for 25 years. And when it was first enacted, it was completely new. I mean, no one had done anything like this before. And it took a while for the police to become comfortable using this mechanism. So the first few years, it was like 20, 30 times a year it would be used. And... Uh, there was a big spike in use of this law after the Virginia Tech murders. I don't know if you remember those. I do. It was a really good situation. And then after Sandy Hook, it really took off. And the reason is, I think, not only did the police know how to use it, but people realized their obligation that if you see something, you should say something. And even today in Ohio, even though you don't actually have a red flag law that would give the police guidance about how what they need to do in order to separate somebody from firearms in this kind of situation, 
there may still be things that they can that they can do and but you need to reach out and you need to communicate this information you need to put it in the hands of law enforcement because there if you read some of these affidavits like i have you know the it's for the police it's just like applying for a search warrant or an arrest warrant you have to provide evidence to a judge in a sworn affidavit mm-hmm. why you believe this this situation exists and but if you read these affidavits you can see oh my god there was clearly something to happen and i can tell you a bunch of stories about that if you want but you know suffice to say a lot of these in almost all these cases they didn't find one gun they found 10 20 30 100 guns thousands of rounds of ammunition pictures of hitler on the wall stuff like that and by the way the most frequent person to alert the police in our experience here has been a healthcare provider oh okay it's treating somebody talking to somebody and they and and it's clear to them that they have these grievances and they have a lot of guns and i'm afraid they might do something so and then in addition to that it's not neighbors who are calling it's family members typically and in a lot of cases more than anything else this is preventing suicides which in many cases are murder suicides and we certainly read about those all the time so anyway that's the connecticut red flag law it's it's never been successfully challenged in court right it's perfectly constitutional the steps are just the same as the police would follow for a search warrant or an arrest warrant. In fact, it's a little bit more difficult to get one of these than it would be to get an arrest warrant or a search warrant. And, and you know, we're very satisfied with how effective it's been over time. So, I, I mean, I do have a couple follow-up questions on that. The one, when you say it's healthcare workers, a lot of times the, that are the ones most commonly raising this this red flag, um, I, I, I'd like to point out slash ask because I, I can imagine people saying, well, wait a minute, there's doctor-patient confidentiality. How can they do that? Um, there are... I can answer th- that, that That's not ironclad, right? <laughs> no, there's an exception called the duty to warn, right? And uh, just like the attorney-client privilege. If, if I'm an attorney, right, if I'm representing a client and a client tells me he's going to kill his wife tonight, not only am I not bound by attorney-client privilege and... In other words, I, it's not that I can't tell the police. I actually now have a duty to warn, right? And if you fail to do that, you're liable. And so I think doctors know, uh, nurses know, psychologists know that there is this exception. And if you think that you have now come into information that indicates this person is either going to kill themselves or kill others or both, then you have a duty to warn. And, and, and that's the exception that applies. And so if, if, it, if this was going to be, have been abused, right, we've got 25 years of experience. If there was going to be indications, well, look at this situation mm-hmm. that was outrageous. Like, we would know it by now. But that, nothing like that has ever happened here, to my knowledge. Sure. And, and so, yeah, I mean, doctors, like lawyers, have a duty to warn. If they, same criteria as the judge is looking at, like, if you... I have reason to believe that the person poses an imminent risk to themselves and others. You have a duty to do something about it. So my other question is 25 years on the books. Are there any, and, and I don't know that because you can't really prove a negative. I understand this, but are you able to point to any sort of statistics about the effectiveness of this law? Yeah. So uh, this was extensively studied um, by a group of mainly psychiatrists, but others from Duke university, Yale university, uh, the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, you know, crunched all the numbers, looked at all the data, and they published their report. Uh, if you Google 
Connecticut gun seizure law, Duke University, Yale University, you'll see it. And it's clearly, they were able to clearly demonstrate, uh, especially that uh, they were able to quantify roughly the number of suicides that were prevented with this law. Having read the affidavits, having looked at these situations, saying in this these situations, it was very clear that based on our experience and training, that this person was about to kill themselves. And again, in many of these situations, it's not just a suicide, but it's a murder right. suicide. And, um, the other thing we can show, it, like, I mean, if you read the affidavit, I mean, this is anecdotal, right? But you sure. the affidavits, I challenge anyone to read this stuff and think, no, there, there was not. <laughs> these, are, these are not like close calls. These are over the top situations. And, and when you compare these stories to the stories we now learn about of these other individuals, the guy in Texas, the guy in Buffalo, and, and plenty of others, you can see the similarities, right? And, and you know, you just mentioned in Ohio that, that one gun store owner uh, took it upon himself to, 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 to reach out to the school officials, I guess. Um, that's exactly what re- responsible people should do. Imagine if the gun store owner in Texas, one day one, sells the kid an AR-15. On the day after his 18th birthday, day two, sells him 300 and 40 rounds of AR-15 ammunition, and on day three, sells them another AR-15. You would think if that gun store proprietor had done what the Ohio gun store proprietor did, just say, you know, I think there might be a problem here. Let me call and find out what's going on. He would have found out the kid was just told he's not going to graduate, was creating all these problems at school, was having all these, you know, they would have connected the dots pretty rapidly. You don't need a red flag warrant to deal with that situation. And, and, I, and I think that's you know, responsible gun owners who are listening to this podcast, I have to assume are nodding their heads. Saying, well, yeah, that's that's what people should do, right? I mean, an 18-year-old kid walking in to buy that stuff right after his birthday, like, what is going on in your life, son? You know, I think you can right. that question. So, so, I mean, so from a pragmatic standpoint, we're really not... We're, it seems like the solution all seems to come back to... Or the mul- multiple solutions, but they all seem to come back to... We got to set politics down and just be a little bit more pragmatic, meet people in the middle a little bit, listen to the concerns of of anybody who's afraid that this means, you know, we're going to if somebody wants to take guns away from law abiding gun owners and no one's talking about that. But what's your concern? And we can work through that. But let's really get to whatever are just what are the outliers we know the prevalence of guns are the outliers. We know that uh, some of the stigmas surrounding access to mental health care is, to some extent, an outlier. So before we get our backs up and make that a political discussion, let's make it a pragmatic discussion. Is that, am I on the right track here? <laughs> and, and I think that's what Senator Murphy, for example, is trying to do right now. He's our senator in Connecticut. You know, I know him quite well. He was in the state legislature yeah. with me for a while. And uh, but I, I think that's what he's trying to do. I mean, like me, he's a partisan Democrat, no question about it. But I think on this issue, he's more sincere than anyone. He was at Sandy Hook with those parents, just like my boss, Governor Malloy, was right there. And he saw this. And, and I think he's got this passion in his heart. Like, we can do something about this. Let's figure it out. Let's come to a compromise. Senator Manchin from West Virginia, near you guys there in Youngstown, mm-hmm. like he... You know, he's very controversial now, but I think he was really trying to figure out what can we do? How can we get people to agree? 
and and uh, I, I think what has changed in American politics with regard to this issue, you know, there's a very, there's a, there's a timeline that I think clearly illustrates what this problem is, right? So back in the, in the mid-1990s, right? By the way, I got elected to the legislature in Connecticut in 1986. So okay. I, I was in the middle of all this drama for all, as it was playing out. And uh, in 1993, we passed our first assault weapon ban. In 1994, there was a federal assault weapon ban enacted with a bipartisan vote signed into law by President. And uh, that law took effect. But one of the compromises to get that law passed was to write into it a 10-year sunset, meaning it would expire in 2004 unless the Congress once again extended it. Fast forward to 2004, um, President Bush is in office. Uh, this, this particular issue has become much more politicized um, and there was no way the assault ban was gonna be extended. But during that 10 year period, no, uh, no weapons were manufactured in the United States and sold to citizens, ordinary citizens, mm -hmm. that were in the category of assault weapons. Right. And during that period of time, there was not a big problem. Once that uh, sunset took place in 19 in 2004, what was very clear is that there has been a very deliberate effort ever since that time by the gun manufacturers to market these specific weapons. They refer to them as modern sporter rifles. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it, it, companies that never made these before started making them. And the, the market has just been flooded with these weapons. And now one of the arguments about whether or not it's unconstitutional to ban them is the fact that they're the most popular weapon on the marketplace, right? Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, and, and this leads you to the, the Sandy Hook murders because uh, the murderer's mother there bought a Bushmaster AR-15 for her son, a gun that was not under the Connecticut ban because Bushmaster had figured out a way to make basically the same weapon, but in such a way as it didn't, it wasn't banned under the definition then in existence in Connecticut. And the the aftermath, I think everybody knows, And but you know, there's a lawsuit now where the Remington, the manufacturer of the Bushmaster has been held liable and, is now, and, and just settled, the, I think for $68 million or something. And, um, they pursued, a, like the other manufacturers of these weapons, had this very deliberate marketing scheme where they were selling it mainly to adolescent young men. You know, for example, one of their ads says, earn your man card. Had a yeah. And, and so, like, all of a sudden, this weapon has become part of a, a, a American culture. And that's why you see uh, at political demonstrations, you know, like in 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 Michigan, you saw in this inside the state capitol. Inside, yes. And you can only imagine what it would have been like on January fifth if DC didn't have such a strict regulation of weapons. Imagine if all the the protesters there had come with AR-15. Yeah. And, and and it's just like this is a recipe for disaster, and it's almost become like an article of faith to have not just one of these weapons, but lots of them. And, and this is what's changed so much that it's, 
it's it, it, it's 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 almost like a religious passion. Uh, There's a sense that it's it's a it's a symbol of your patriotism to have all these weapons. And, and okay, for most people, for many people who are extremely responsible gun owners, it's not going to be a problem. But the, the, I think I said earlier, to me, the challenge is how do you narrow the gap between the number of firearms in circulation and the number of responsible gun owners? They're wasted. Not to ban guns, right? But just to get it down so that the number in circulation is relatively related to the number of people who are responsible <laughs> enough to own one. So now, I mean, it was reported today, just to, 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 to come to a bit of a conclusion here, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. It was reported today that Mitch McConnell has indicated to John Cornyn that he is to reach out to Chris Murphy and others and start to try and find some common ground, which, at least as a headline, seems like a big deal. But everything you just said has changed a lot in the culture. This has gotten very interwoven. So I guess my, my final question to you is, do you think that this is any sort of a turning point towards finding some kind of a pragmatic solution, or are the politics too far gone? Well, all I can tell you is in Connecticut, when this happened at Sandy Hook, uh, the legislature was able to pass with a very strong bipartisan majority uh, a series of gun reforms that never in my wild imagination that I think could actually get passed, even in Connecticut, right? So mm -hmm. these tragedies tend to have an impact on the behavior of elected officials, for sure, right? On the other hand, uh, in Congress, at least, we've been down this road before, right? I think everybody remembers the Peanuts cartoon where Lucy pulls the football. Sure. Just to be working. So, uh, you know, this could be fake. I don't know. I hope it's sincere. I hope it's not cynical. Uh, I think Chris Murphy is ready, willing, and able to act in good faith to come up with a deal and stick to it, right? Um, and the thing you hear discussed the most, and I just want to mention this as, as one possible major step on a national level, is um, uh, universal background checks. As you know, there is a law that it, it's called the Brady Law. It dates back to, it's named after James Brady, who was President Reagan's press secretary, mm -hmm. who was almost killed um, together with President Reagan in that assassination attempt. <clears throat> but what that law says is if you want to buy a gun, you have to pass a background check. Great, right? But that only applies to federally licensed firearm dealers. So after that, anybody can privately sell a firearm to anybody else in many states, including Ohio, without asking any questions whatsoever. And that's how a lot of these guns get into circulation. You can't do it legally in Connecticut. And you can't do it legally in, in a number of other states, but in most of the country, you can do it. And that is a huge loophole. And to be able to say that you cannot sell a firearm or give a firearm to anybody unless you've, you've gone through a background check, that would be a huge change. Because, again, it, promote, it doesn't in any way restrict people's ability to have firearms. Mm -hmm. We Just so you know, we we're going to hold you responsible for that. Just kind of like you do with a car. I think everyone's accustomed, like, if you buy a car, it's registered to you. If something goes wrong with that car, they're going to come to you. And you're going to get sued. If you give your car to somebody and they get into an accident, you're getting sued, right? That's The insurance goes with the car. Responsibility goes with the car. So if you own a firearm, 
your responsibility. If it ends up into the wrong hands <clears throat> because you left it on your front porch or you left it in your unlocked car, unlocked, <clears throat> or you sell it to somebody without finding out who they were, like that's on you. It's your responsibility. And I think that would be a huge change in the culture uh, that has come to be known as gun culture in our country. There's much more that could be done and should be done, but that would be, I, I, and I assume that's what Chris is focused on right now. I thank you very much for your time. This has been, I think, a very enlightening conversation. Um, you know, as I've said many, many times, I'm, you know, it's not my role to look for a political answer. It's to cut through that and just what would work. And I think we touched on some of that today. And I, and I really appreciate your time. Awesome. Anytime. Thank you very much. Thank you.